Okay, is your wire ready? Good. Here we go. Okay, you can do this, Philip. You can do this. It's just a normal walk. It's a 1,300 foot drop, but it's just a normal walk. Here we go. Okay, one foot on the wire. Oh, my dear, it's more windy up here than I thought. No, focus. These are my towers. These are my towers. Here we go. Okay, foot across. It's one foot forward. Two foot forward. Okay. All right, this is it. This is easy. Here we go. It's time to entertain. Hello, and welcome to The Culture Quest. We are but humble adventurers, and I don't know about you guys, but I kind of want to have an illegal adventure. With me today, as always, are Peter. Hello. And Barrio. Hello. And I am Inon. Thank you, the listeners at home, for taking part in our noble quest. So, uh, we'll start today by discussing something that Peter was inspired to talk about um, by a conversation that I think we had a while back about making up rules. Um, then we'll go into the main discussion, which today will be about Man on Wire, a documentary movie from 2008 about Philip Petit's daring tightrope walk between the Twin Towers in New York City. And to finish things off, we'll quickly introduce our subject for the next episode, which is going to be Hunt for the Wilder People, a movie by Taika Waititi from 2016. And we'll talk quickly about why we chose it. And a little bonus uh, at the end, we'll play a promo clip of the Jumbled podcast right after the ending theme. Uh, stick around, maybe you'll find something interesting and give them a listen or something. And as always, everything in the show notes is timestamped, so if you want to jump around in our episode or if you want to go back to an earlier episode and find a specific bit of discussion, that's what it's there for. Thank you guys for listening. And um, Peter, do you want to start talking about um, that thing you want to talk about? Yeah. <laughs> um, Nailed it. <laughs> thanks. Good job. <laughs> So we're talking about what law we would implement. Um, was it two podcasts ago? Could have even been three. Yeah. Episode six, I think. Yeah. So um, I did the everyone has to drink a glass of um, water every day. but Which um, I've been following since. <laughs> yeah, I have as well, actually. Um, <laughs> Such a conformist, you know. Mine usually has some leaves in it and it's boiled water. It's a cup of tea. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, then I was thinking, what law should we remove or what maybe law we could change or repeal? And at the time, I was listening to an audiobook called Don't Be Evil. Don't know who it's by. Bad preparation, Peter. I'll get the author up for you anyway in the show notes. But essentially what they were talking about is the impact of um, big tech firms on the economy and in particular for my purposes was patents and patent law. And essentially, um, what I found interesting was the lobbying power that um, Google had in 2011 when they they changed probably the most significant change to patent law in 60 years in America, which was the America Invents Act. And essentially what this did was it weakened the patents in America. And this was all passed under the guise of essentially people would buy patents, say, say I'll buy on a patent for a flying car. And then in 20 years when there is flying cars and someone actually needs like the patent, guess who that'll be? It'll probably be Samsung, Sony or something like that. But And then they could just make a bargain by selling that off for, you know, they'll just an extortionate rate, like a million dollars or something like that. So that was a problem in the patent industry. But what the big tech giants were doing were saying, oh, this is the problem we want to get rid of, so can we change the patent laws? But it wasn't really the problem they were concerned about. The problem they were concerned about is small developers who are just creating, you know, smart apps, parking apps or AR or something like that, VR or something like that, just something slightly more niche. Essentially, what Google wanted to do is make all of that unprotected so they could steal it or have an out-of-court settlement or purchase it on the cheap and then they could just obviously further increase their monopoly and develop the technology by themselves at Google or they could just bin it and obviously wouldn't be as competitive in the market so um, but yeah they were trying to pass it under the guise of protecting this speculative sort of merchanting of um, 
of patents. So, um, yeah, I just thought it was sort of something that would probably be unknown to most people, that people actually wouldn't have known that Google donated about $18 million in 2011. So, um, yeah, I thought it was quite interesting. I find it kind of funny that lobbying is still a thing. I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of reasons why it's okay to do that, but I don't know. It feels funny that like Google can spend just a bunch of money on lobbying for something that would benefit them and hurt a lot of small businesses. Yeah, well, that's business for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't understand it one bit, so I can't really complain. Just feels funny. Um, I don't know. I kind of feel like you, you need those small businesses to kind of, you know, think of things that are more niche that are more out of the way you know stuff that google wouldn't necessarily deal with and kind of i don't know you know break new grounds in ways you wouldn't expect and do you think this kind of lobbying this kind of um, rule changing would decrease the number of small businesses that would you know work things out and get new patents essentially in business right there's this general trend where you have a lot of small businesses like heaps and heaps and heaps of small businesses and then you'll have a few medium size and then just a very small portion, which are big. And these small businesses are obviously cropping up. You don't crop up as a big business. So you obviously have to start small. And then slowly these small companies are bought out by medium companies. The medium companies are bought out by the bigger companies. So everything sort of begins to become sort of owned. But like most most 90% of business is owned by like, you know, 10% of the companies, right? Yeah. Um, which isn't necessarily a problem. But when it comes to tech, you can't just monopolize everything and give it to Google. You need to have other people developing stuff and they need to be able to develop it in isolation. And obviously, if you don't have any patent laws, don't have any protection of your product, then there's no chance we're going to get competitors to Google, not necessarily just a search provider. But if we wanted to have something like um, self-driving cars, which was say such such like Google Waymo or something like that. But if Google didn't purchase that, then it would be people actually working to produce this product for a profit. Whereas Google could just scrap it and it wouldn't matter because they just have the money to not pursue it. You sort of need the competition to actually get goods to the consumer. And the reason why it's so easy to sort of not notice is because whilst you're seeing all the things that Google produce, like the Pixel 4 or the um, Google Home Mini or something like that, you don't see the products that weren't produced because of this. So if your patent or your invention isn't protected by law, then the incentive to do something, to invent something, to make something new is just kind of not there. No one would invent something. No one would create a new app that answers a need that no one's thought of yet if it's not viable, you know, if it's not going to be yeah. protected, if you can't control where the profits are going, Yeah. at least in the beginning. And I kind of have to say, like, to me, Google is like, I don't know, a, a parent figure that's looking over me because I feel like any everything I do in life is supported by Google <laughs> and they're always there for me. And <laughs> it's like the parents you have, but smarter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with more money. <laughs> and kind of seeing them, you know, just acting like any other business and, you know, maximizing their profits and kind of trampling other smaller businesses. I, I kinda have to see that every once in a while to remember that they're not as perfect as they seem, you know? Yeah, I think a lot of the tech companies like Google and less so Facebook, but mostly Google and Amazon are sort of coming out as liberal sort of, you know, change in the game. Like it was Wall Street was sort of the enemy. So Silicon Valley was sort of like the up and coming sort of innovative creators of change and stuff like that. But I think especially after reading the Don't Be Evil book, it's just becoming much more evident that Silicon Valley's just going the way of Wall Street. And not so they're not conforming to the whole, you know, geeks working out of a basement anymore. It's very much like CEOs controlling, you know, stock prices and stuff like that. So it's they're still trying to take um advantage of the their old sort of image whilst sort of still lobbying tech giants and stuff. They're second in 
donations to um, politicians behind the pharmaceutical industry, which will surprise no mm. one, which is a bit of a shame because I, di- I didn't think they were that involved in politics until recently. Yeah. It's, it's a bit of a shame, especially because now China's increasing their patent protection, their um, intellectual property system. So um, if you were designing an app, say something that could rival Spotify or something like that, which had like bootlegs or something like that, and you had a choice between starting up in China or starting up in the States. And you know in China they have much more protection for your software then it's a bit of a no-brainer. I think it just needs the image that we have of um, Silicon Valley, I think, is slowly starting to change. I think especially with these targeted advertising and things like that, I think people are recognising that even if on a personal level, speaking from experience, I actually kind of like that ads are being targeted for me and things are being personalized like my youtube recommendations and stuff like that like it's actually kind of nice that you know i don't have to scroll so far down to find like what i want because it knows the youtubers that i tend to like and it knows the products i tend to buy so um it definitely has its advantages yeah yeah it's definitely like on a personal level it's actually pretty great but on the (laughs) societal level when we're trying to like increase you know, diversity and competition and stuff like that, then it's um, then it's not as good. So it's hard to take the sort of the long view of it all. Yeah, there's a discussion I really like. Uh, a lot of companies in general say today that user information is the new oil, right? Ah, uh, like yeah, yeah. You keep looking for, for more data about your users because then you can actually, you know, um, market or advertise to them more specifically than like enhance your revenue. And there are a lot of business models that, that are all about that. And I, I read this article, I, I really resonated with me that like user data isn't the new oil, it's like a new currency. Hmm. You trade data that is about you in order to get uh, more services. Uh, you're willing for Gmail for, to kind of scan your emails to understand what you like in order for them to advertise to you more efficiently. Um, and, and by the way, you kind of see a lot of lawmaking around that. I, I don't know if you heard about GDPR, like it's a new um, set of rules that is set. Like it's it now starts in Europe, and but you kind of see other rules that follows. Is that why every website on the internet is talking to me about cookies? Exactly, exactly. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> Everything's coming together. It got in a couple of years ago in Europe, and it also starts to show in, uh, like, I think uh, California just passed uh, like a state rule, uh, CCPA, I think, something like that, which is also like a privacy act that kind of says that the data belongs to the end user. So you have to willingly give consent for the actual uh, service provider to use it. Hmm. I've got to say that um, the EU are, are usually the first ones to adopt stuff like this. Oh, really? Yeah, especially with a lot of the stuff that Google's been involved with. I think Google have a saying, it's uh, move fast and break things. That's Facebook. Um, oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, that was their uh, R&D uh, motto, I think. But oh, they yeah. changed it because they broke they broke things too often. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I wasn't sure about it, but yeah, that would make sense. So um, you think Google sort of follow the same thing, or you could say Google might commit the crime and ask for forgiveness later, except they don't exactly ask for forgiveness. You know, like they sort of just took it upon themselves to do Google Street View and stuff like that. Like there was no like consent letter or anything sent around. They're just taking photos of your house and the aerial footage and stuff like that. And we just didn't ever question it. And then these Google Homes in our in our houses that record us and then the Pixel phones which look at us and then all this stuff. Like it's quite crazy like how quickly they've sort of just set up this surveillance economy which they didn't really address. Like they never put a press out about how much data they have on us. So um, yeah, it's mainly a thing because uh, legislation is always like two steps behind technology. There's a really famous case I think that someone had something really embarrassing uh, published about them, and like every time you googled the name, then you got the result of that really embarrassing article, and it kind of ruined his life. And there, there wasn't a set of rules that could actually protect him. So I think that case went on for years, but 
like eventually he won and there's a law that says that the right to be forgotten hmm. if uh, Google displays some kind of result about you you can you can ask Google to to remove it like this case and its publications are probably like one of the basic catalysts of, of this whole privacy acts um, yeah but but it's interesting because um, I think that also we as consumers have to be aware of that like uh, nothing is free. Every service that we use, we pay for it probably with our personal data. And, um, it's so easy to forget. Yeah, it's really easy to forget. And we don't actually kind of own our data in the fact that we can't sell it. They get it for free and then they sell it, you know what I mean? So sort of like a mismatch. Legally, you can approach every company that has data over you. And if you ask them to delete it, they're obligated and they have to oh, bring wow. you proof. Yeah. Mario, have you ever came across anything like that uh, in your career? I mean, you're a computer programmer, and I think you're, you deal with um, user data, right? Yeah, a lot. That's our primary business. So we yeah. keep talking about it all the time, like giving uh, explicit consent and giving users the ability to control over their information. It's really, it's really a, a concern for all big companies because, again, there's legislation around it. Um, and, but you also see that it's starting to come also with uh, web browsers. Uh, <laughs> I can tell you that as a web developer, it causes a lot of issues, but like uh, Safari, like in, in Mac OS and, uh, and also in iOS and also Firefox and, and Chrome and Edge are soon to follow. They're all implementing some kind of uh, tracking prevention engines that kind of try to uh, protect you as a user from being tracked. And I think that the interesting thing here is not necessarily you using your personal data as currency to get services, but the actual fact that you're kind of creating, I think it's called a semantic bubble around yourself. Because let's say Google. Google knows a lot about about us, right? Uh, They know what we like and what our preferences are. So Usually when we Google something, because they try to optimize their result, they bring things that might interest us. But the thing is that this semantic bubble can sometimes segregate us from, from the rest of the world. There's a really beautiful example. I think, uh, I think there's a TED talk about it. I think it was around 10 years ago. Uh, you see two people from two different places in the world Google Egypt, right? Okay. And one is getting like this... A uh, full-on recommendation for uh, trips and uh, and the best places to stay touristy in Egypt. Stuff. Yeah, very touristy <laughs> stuff. And another person is getting like all about the uh, revolution, what they did with their president, and like a lot of really actual news. Like a grim picture of Egypt. <laughs> yeah, but you know, like in principle, that's kind of alarming because Google, as like the primary source of information, is kind of trying to optimize what's relevant to you. But you you don't necessarily want it, and and that kind of sometimes blocks you from from getting the full perspective over a certain matter. Facebook is also also the same. You keep getting views that are similar to yours, and uh, keep getting like proof that the other views are terrible. It's whatever will really keep you on the platform, because obviously challenging your views aren't beneficial for you to stay on Facebook. You know, you want to sort yeah. of like the ultimate sort of article from their perspective is something that you agree with but still provokes outrage because obviously outrage will keep you clicking and stuff like that. So you sort of want something like if you're a member of the left, you want something about how the right political party um, embarrass themselves or if you're on the right, you want something about the left, how they're screwing stuff up. So like it's it's just whatever keeps you clicking. It's actually sort of, I would say, blind as to what, I don't think they really have an interest about challenging or maintaining your views. I think it's just whatever would keep you on the site for the longest. So. Yeah, exactly. What whatever whatever keeps you uh, engaged in in the actual yeah. site. Yeah. Although I'm more puzzled about Google because Google in search results, you wouldn't think they would have such a unlike Facebook, you wouldn't think they would have such like a time on screen sort of like you're always clicking away from them even the bias that he was talking about like i'm reading another book at the moment the madness of crowds by um douglas murray and he was saying if you if you google straight couples right now i just googled it and you would think like you would get all just a bunch of straight couples but in the first 20 images you get i think 13 
gay couples and Theresa May. So what what's Theresa May doing there? <laughs> and all the gay couples, but um, so it, but if you put in gay couples, all you get is gay couples. So like it's it has this weird sort of activism going on in just like Google Images, which is like I don't know what money they're getting from Google Images besides obviously just putting things at the top. But yeah. yeah. It's kind of concerning. It's all in a black box. Their algorithm is just like a, you know, unknown to everyone. So it's just an internal thing. So we can't exactly like investigate it. No. Essentially, we all enjoy the fruits of Google and Apple and Facebook or some of us do. I'm not on Facebook, but um, obviously you can't, I don't think the method to reform the tech industry is to say like, we don't want Facebook or we don't want google search because obviously like in general they're very useful things but i think it's hard for people to kind of keep two differing sort of opinions in their head saying on a personal level it's beneficial but more on a societal level when in the future it's not going to work i think that's the difficult thing to sort of always keep in mind while people are using their like mobiles and their headphones and stuff like that and even though like it does sound like it's a big rant i think it's just a really about aligning sort of your goals you don't want facebook essentially to have the goal of you needing to use the platform constantly and when you're out of service reaching for your phone and realizing you don't have Facebook and being frustrated, no one wants that except obviously um, advertisers and stuff. So I think the only way forward is really just to sort of work out how we can better align the incentives of these companies with what we actually want to get out of life. So um, because if we're just going to make legislation more strict and it's just become sort of an arms race between them trying to find a loophole with our data and us trying to keep our lives healthy while we're carrying around these attention sinks in our pockets so i think yeah that's probably just my general thoughts about it but um yeah we should keep in mind that like barrio said nothing is is free except for this podcast for now at least <laughs> <laughs> now, for now. Google Google podcasts <laughs> but but you know I gotta I gotta just add on a personal note um, I also you know talked with a couple of people also from Canada and also from the states about it and like they they have real concern for for their privacy and I gotta say that I'm not entirely sure why is that an issue I mean except for that semantic bubble that I mentioned before I don't really care if if I'm tracked a bit and getting better results and i get free services i think like it's mainly in my advantage yeah i totally agree yeah me too totally agree the thing is right at the moment if they're tracking where you're going and stuff they might say oh did you know the place you're about to go has a sale on for 50 percent off just just letting you know which is great but it's the point where the data gets so good it's seeing patterns so clearly that it's actually prompting you to do things subconsciously that you wouldn't otherwise do. So you're sort of losing mm. that degree of freedom. So whilst this data is sort of in its infancy and Netflix is recommending like all the best documentaries and stuff like that, like Man on Wire, which we're about to um, talk about, then it's great. But I just think um, the long-term view is sort of more consequential. Is that sort of your thoughts as well, Barrio, as a program developer? Or? Yeah, I think we're pretty much in a um, good place because, like, because there are alternatives, then it uh, it prevents things from going like real south. Because if you had no other option than to use Google, then I think that Google will probably will take greater risks in uh, in tracking us or or like really aggressively getting information about us. But because hmm. you know yeah. um, Google can lose us to Microsoft or Facebook or you know other open source uh, products that, that are out, out there, uh, free competition is kind of putting everything in line. But that's a delicate balance. Yeah, I think there's just a lot of factors which uh, you can't 
summarize very easily, which I'm slowly discovering as I'm trying to do it on an opening segment of a podcast. Because <laughs> you want to have like the free market, but also you don't want to, for instance, like the free market is actually a good appeal. It's just when, say, Google get too big and then they can start sort of buying the competition then that's still technically the free market but then we say we want to decrease barriers to entry which is essentially saying to google that you just can't buy everything that you're not you know what i mean you can't just buy every small place that's technically making the market more free but it's in one sense freer in the sense that there's more competitors and it's more competitive but it's less free in the sense that we've meddled with it now so there's more legislation so it's it's kind of like a tough um, balance to strike so i don't think there's any one ideology which is going to fix it i think it's just you just got to have a real deep understanding of what actually is going on so i think um there's a lot of stuff coming out like i'll leave the link in the description for the don't be evil and i'll also leave a description of the um america invents act but i think there's just um common common sense that needs updating or the public intellectual space needs to sort of have someone that can illuminate this issue which is sort of not out in the open so i think it's really interesting i mean if they have like uh, more direct effect on our daily lives than we we might think yeah if you guys ever want to pick this discussion up again just say yeah. someone will Yeah, definitely. I'd love to do some sort of like a less intense sort of version of it where we could like talk about, I don't know, if there was ever a documentary or another book or something, then it'd be mm, nice to yeah. talk about it in a slower sort of more thought out way. And until then, uh, you know, just open an incognito tab and, uh, and do all, all your searches <laughs> from, from there. Okay, so this week we're talking about uh, documentary film Man on Wire, which tells the story of Philippe Petit, which I kind of liked. I, I know this movie won an Oscar, which is pretty cool. And uh, Peter, you, you want to give us some background on it? Yeah, when I was um, looking for our next topic, I sort of wanted to do something we hadn't done. So we'd done a bit of philosophy, we'd done a bit of um, movies, obviously, we'd done a couple albums now, we've done a video game. So I wanted to do uh, a documentary this time. And so when I did some Googling of documentaries, I, I found this one, which I'd heard a bit about, because Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who plays the... Um, is it Robin in The Dark Knight? His name is Robin, but... Yeah. <laughs> that's not the name of the character, really. <laughs> I'm happy to call him Robin. But um, anyway, so he was in this sort of feature film album, I think it was in 2015, um, called The Walk, which was about, um, obviously, about Philippe Petit, a French tightrope book. And... Um, I just thought that was quite an interesting premise to walking between the um, twin towers so yeah I'd, I'd looked at the um, movie posters never seen that movie but I thought um, I watched the 2008 documentary of it and without getting too much into it before we talk about sort of Philippe Petit I thought um, the thing I was surprised about was that it was actually sort of like a heist movie so hmm. and when I say heist I mean the fact that it was you It was illegal to get up to the roof firstly of the twin towers and then they had to do all the rigging which I didn't think about of to get the um, to get obviously the tightrope up there and then obviously walking between the twin towers which is probably the least illegal thing I mean the most illegal thing is setting <laughs> up all the wires but the the walking on it is well you've already committed the crime so you may as well and um, yeah when they did that when they went up there the building was still not finished. Yeah, I mean, they, they were still working on those levels. So they were sort of like they had announced the it was ready, but it wasn't really ready. You know what I mean? It was like ready to yeah. be used for business use, mm. but they were still kind of working on it. So the first thing we get into with um, Philippe Petit is um, essentially how he how he got the idea was sort of the first part of the film. So if you recall, he was, he was sitting in a waiting room, right? He was, um, he had sort of like an ache in his tooth, went to the dentist and he found the magazine where it had the twin towers. And it was such a different time then because he was contemplating, like he wanted to like rip that piece out of the magazine to get 
the picture of the Twin Towers, which is like it's such a weird thought that this is like 1974. You don't have a cell phone, which you could just <laughs> Google the Twin Towers. You know what I mean? Like I didn't think about it. So he had to rip it out, leave, and then... Oh, sorry. I think my Google Assistant just went off. Wow, this is creepy. Um, <laughs> it heard us. It's listening. <laughs> so I'm in trouble I'm with Google now. <laughs> you might even hear it through the um, mic. So, yeah, he um, had sore teeth for a week because he didn't want to go in when he stolen some of the magazine. And... Um, he managed to obviously steal that piece of the magazine, and that's sort of when the the dream started for his high wire act. Um, so the movie goes through a few flashbacks. So in 1971, so a few years um, before he walked between the twin towers, he walked between the two towers on the Notre Dame. Notre Dame, we'll call Notre Dame, and I kind of thought he would just like walk on it, but he was like juggling and you know, laying down and stuff like that. Like the laying down kind of freaks me out the most. Yep. Because you just think like, what happens if you're just too relaxed and you fall asleep? <laughs> no, he's, he's very talented. <laughs> he, yeah. Um, I thought after he did that, they would just kind of let him walk wherever they want. But no, he had to go into the Twin Towers like as someone else. You know what I mean? Like obviously the internet wasn't around yet. Otherwise there would have been a BuzzFeed article about him and, he would have yeah. been like escorted to the Twin Towers and they would have put a net up and all this stuff. So, um, yeah. but anyway, yeah. so after he did that, he did the two north pylons on the Sydney Harbour Bridge in Australia. So, I don't know if that was higher, but it seemed like it was a little bit higher because that's a pretty big bridge. So, I think it's important to say that after he did both walks, he was arrested. <laughs> it's illegal to do that. Yeah, but it's sort of like wink, wink, nudge, nudge, illegal. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like <laughs> yeah. it's sort of. Well, I think one of the act, um, one of the people in the film actually says it, but it's not like malicious. Like no one's being hurt. It's just you're just on the wrong side of the law, which is kind of funny. So. I think they said it's. They know it's illegal, but it was important to them that it wasn't a mean or an ugly crime. I think Joseph Gordon-Levitt later said when he was interviewed about the, the walk, the movie he was in, he said, I love that it's a heist, but the characters aren't looking to steal money. Yeah. You know, like they know it's illegal, but they're not trying to hurt anyone. So, yeah, the consequences aren't that bad. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. Um, anyway, so after he did the um, Sydney Harbour Bridge, this is all sort of going on whilst the crew is getting ready in the building so they're going up obviously through twin towers like half the team is in the north half the team is in the south and then they've obviously got to shoot the rope over then they've sort of done a what would you say like a a history or like the making of Philippe Petit so um the two walks were sort of meant to summarize that he's like ready for it mentally mm. to do this but the Twin Towers were sort of like, if you compare the heights, the Twin Towers like an order of magnitude bigger than anything else he's ever done. So, like, you got to account for, like, the wind at that height. You know what I mean? Like, that's starting to get towards, like, aeroplane height. So... Nah, the Twin Towers are monsters. <laughs> They're up and above the, the Manhattan Island. Uh, just looking at pictures of it was scary to me. And especially, like, I didn't know this, but... Apparently, the Twin Towers, like, sway due, due to the wind. Like, yeah. that's how big it is. Like, I don't think the Notre Dame, the Parry, is, is swaying. So, no, no. Yeah. They had to rig the steel cable, um, which was, like, 60 meters. Do you guys use meters? Yeah, yep. you guys use meters. Um, and that was sort of, like, one of the tougher bits of the movie, I thought, like, trying to, um, <laughs> trying to rig up the cable. Um, between the towers. So I think um, I've got the height here. It was 417 meters off the ground. So, and all the heavy equipment and stuff like that. So, anyway, so the, um, as you said, the towers were still un under construction. So, what he actually did to try to plan out the heist was he got into a helicopter and did one of those like sightseeing tours to try to see from a helicopter like how the both the roofs look and also mentally to get like up higher than the twin towers so it doesn't <laughs> feel as high yeah. if he's been higher which i thought was kind of funny because like can you imagine getting into a helicopter and he goes oh where do you want to go oh just the twin towers and then you've done like 20 laps of the twin <laughs> towers and the guy's like are you like 
planning a heist? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, like, we're in New York. Do you want to see, like, Empire State? No, 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 no. <laughs> Just this building. <laughs> like, that would be so weird. So, um, I kind of thought, like, he must have slipped him a 50 or something for no questions because that <laughs> Or just perhaps he did the me. whole tour, you know? Maybe he did the whole tour just so many times and, like, he'd fall asleep during the other parts of the tour. But then when it yeah. got close to the um, Twin Towers, he'd, like, pull out the camera and, like, sketch pad and all this stuff. So, yeah. I don't know what he did, but <laughs> um, I think they might have even rented. Oh, no, sorry. I think, did they, they would have rented the helicopter, wouldn't it, they? Yeah, okay, okay. That would make more sense. So, because they had the photographer with them, um, Jim, Jim Moore, who was from New York. So, he probably had, like, connections. And um, oh, now the tough French names come comes in. Jean-Francois and Jean-Louis um, helped him... Mm-hmm. Um, they were the ones who helped him practice in his sort of field in France. And then they obviously came to do all the rigging up on the Twin Towers and do the photography and stuff like that. And then they had Francis Brunn. Yeah, he was the guy in the second tower, which was sort of like a bit of distrust between um, between the people in like the other towers. Like they just didn't know each other very well, which I kind of thought was a bit weird. Like they're just... They all wanted to do it, but for different reasons. You know what I mean? Like, Philippe obviously wanted to walk across it, and his brother wanted to help him. But the other guys were just like, oh, we just want to do something, like, illegal and, like, fun and stuff. So, like, yeah. it was just, like, a weird mesh of people to do this heist, I thought. Yeah. There was this guy that kind of bailed in the middle, and, like, they, yeah, they interviewed it, and, and he was like, yeah, it was too much for me, then I left. <laughs> I know, I thought that was so weird. Was that, that was the moment when... Um, when they went under the tarp, right? Yeah. Yeah, but it was a little bit after that. It was, was it like when they were doing the rigging and he dropped some of the like the high wire and then when they were pulling it up, it was just he- like super heavy and like it took them like 40 minutes to actually like get the wire back up. And then the, like halfway through, that guy was just like, Nah, I'm out. This is stupid. So that's so weird. Like, if I was him, I would just be so ashamed of myself. Yeah. I wouldn't do the documentary. I would just like erase myself from history. So yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's one thing to bail, but just to be interviewed for a for a documentary, just to say that bailed out of a really great adventure. That's yeah, it's weird. Yeah, I thought that was super weird. Like, I would have to be paid quite a bit of money to go on that documentary just to say I bailed. You know, it doesn't it? Doesn't <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't be bringing my my mum and dad to the premiere of that movie? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Anyway, so um, after he did all this um, rigging and stuff like that, it was early hours in the morning, so they wanted to get in at I think it was about six thirty. But they were under the tarp. Um, Philippe and um, Jean Louis, they were under the tarp for. I think like three hours or something like that. I think there might have been a bit of exaggeration going on as well, but that's a long time to be under the tarp. And what are the police officers doing that they're just not, they're just hanging out. And then there was a guy in the other tower that was having like a smoke. So I just, <laughs> yeah, I found that was a bit bizarre as well. I didn't think about it, but but I think you're right. I think that's kind of like what, like Petit is very uh, kind of extravagant, artist and it kind of sounds like he probably made the story a bit bigger than it was it yeah. doesn't really make sense why would police officers just monitor the the place if they there's no entry there yeah i think i think it's weird like the thing i find weird was like not that there would be police officers around there because i imagine when there's like when something's un- under construction you know police officers would come through maybe a couple of times a night just to make sure especially in new york because you know, they have the resources to sort of do it. But, like, just to hang out on the floor that they happen to be there, that I found that super weird. So, yeah. But yeah. Um, I think there probably was a bit of exaggeration going on. But um, so once they had been rigged up and they had used all the – because they had to do a little bit of extra rigging as well to sort of stabilize the main sort of – um, tightrope. Yeah, usually they have kind of ropes going to the sides and to the ground yeah. to hold everything from swaying and going up and down. I think they call it cavaletti. So here you don't have the ground <laughs> to tie to. <laughs> so they had to do like some weird configuration, like diagonal ones, and 
that sort of held it on. But that's that was that yeah, would they anchored make, it to the buildings. That would make me sort of nervous actually, because like new yeah. rigging and stuff like that. So anyway, we'll find out soon how the rigging went. But um, they stabilized the rope, and then after about seven a.m. local time, he stepped out in the wire and started to perform. So. Um, again, this was about 400 meters off the ground. So you can think if you're down on ground level, I don't know if you have any 400 meter buildings in Israel, but, um, almost certainly don't in Perth, but that is very difficult to see anyone (laughs) up there. Like you all, like I was almost thinking he might've done it and no one would see it. Like he was like, oh, I was up there. Guys, didn't you see me? <laughs> It'd just be no one. So, <laughs> but um, he had a bit of a groupy girlfriend um, down on ground level and she was sort of like, oh, wow, look at that. Who's that guy? And, you know, he, she got like a group of people to watch. So, and um, then... And the traffic helicopter noticed him. Yeah, when the, when the helicopter noticed him, that was sort of like game on for them. So... I mean, I don't know if they were trying to get publicity, but like, I think that's sort of the goal. After the Sydney one and after the Notre Dame one, I think that was yeah. they sort of want to do a show. So, um, so yeah, he did. He was up there for about forty-five minutes, and he was saying like, as he got onto the wire, you know, you sort of like feel how it is because obviously it's a bit tighter towards the ends of the rope and a little bit more slack during the middle bit. I know, I know ropes, so a bit of rope (laughs) info for you. But he said, like, when he was getting on, usually he has to sort of go to the other side and make sure it's all even. But he said apparently it felt really good when he was up there, so he kind of just began walking, like, really casually across. So then he started doing all of his, um, doing his laying down on the wire and he did his salute and, um, you know, he did all those things. And I think he did eight passes along the wire, so like eight laps, I guess you could say. So um, 45 minutes, eight laps, that's pretty good. That's like, what, six minutes a lap, something like that. So The policeman that was up on the roof waiting to arrest him, he said that, like, he was jumping up and down, like, <laughs> at, at points, his feet wouldn't even touch the rope. Like, he was turning around and jumping and, and just having the time of his life. <laughs> yeah, I thought... Like, that would be pretty good shift to be the police officer that came up to the roof, I thought. <laughs> so, um, but you know what I thought was super weird, which would not fly today? They were saying, like, they were going to lock him up off um, <laughs> off the rope with a helicopter if he didn't get off. Yeah. So, um, I was like, what? Like, you know, what about the wind and stuff like that? Like, you might as well just kill him. So, um, no, it sounds extremely dangerous. Yeah. Maybe if they dropped the long ladder or something like that. But can you imagine being on a rope and trying to like grab onto a ladder? Like, that's just a recipe for disaster. So, what if he dropped his pole? <laughs> like, oh, yeah. What happens <laughs> if it just like knocked the rope or something like that? Like, whoops. <laughs> you know, you'd feel a bit responsible. But yeah, he ended up getting off when it started to rain anyway, which is as good a reason as any. So, but yeah, no, I thought it was um, it was pretty cool. And like when he got off and he was arrested and all this stuff like that, they ended up dropping all like the charges and stuff like that. And he was required to give a aerial show to the people in Central Park for his sins. So, which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah, I like that as well. So when he after he was arrested, I think he was waiting to be taken away, and a bunch of reporters asked him why. He did it. And I think this is this is the, the best quote from the movie. He said, I was asked that question a thousand times today and there is no why. When I see a beautiful place to put my wire on, I can't resist. Hmm. I think that sums it up as well. He was sort of like a weird character. Like at the end, his, he sort of breaks up with his um, at the time girlfriend because he's sort of getting involved with other people after. And he just sort of like, it was like a transformative moment. Like he kind of had tunnel vision to do this. And then after it was such like a feeling of like relief that he'd sort of just be able to do it in his lifetime. Not necessarily it didn't fall, but just that he got the opportunity, like they didn't get arrested or anything like that. Like I think it was sort of like a weird feeling, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And especially like I just don't think he knew what was on the other side of it. So I think he must have been kind of bewildered when he actually got down. Like, it would have been a very weird feeling. Yeah. Yeah. You can imagine how much adrenaline was pumping through his veins. I don't know. 
if everyone sees the towers the same way I do or not, but I, I kind of grew up thinking that these towers were iconic, and I'm not talking about September 11th or anything after that. I, like, when I was a kid, my parents showed me pictures of them from the tower, like at the plaza underneath, and then from the roof, uh, there was um, an observation deck or something, and I always thought that they had some sort of magic or charm to them, you know? And I, I kind of love the feeling of Petit has a connection to these these towers that no one will ever have. Like, no one will ever achieve what he did with these towers, I think. And to think that he did that even before the towers were finished, no one can look at those towers and say they did what he did. I find it charming. Yeah. Hmm. I, yeah, I haven't thought about it. I've always forgotten the... Um, what is it? The... What, the Freedom Tower that they built now? Oh, yeah, that one's a new one. That one looks so cool, the Freedom Tower. I thought that was such a good name for yeah. it as well. I think that's the tallest um, building in the Western Hemisphere as well. So, If you count the tip, I think it's 1776 feet, which Oof. goes with the theme of freedom <laughs> in America. That's that's awesome. <laughs> I didn't even know that. Yeah. Um, no, anyway, the um, Empire State Building. I always kind of thought that one was like the most iconic, but the Twin Towers, obviously... For good and for bad, they're pretty well known now. So I'd love to go to the... I always thought I'd get a chance to go there. Like, after I saw my parents' pictures, I kind of... It was, you know, something I wanted to do, but I never got to do it. Yeah, it's probably worth a trip to go even to the new one. I think that would be pretty pretty awesome. And later, I mean, after he did all that, he he lived in New York for a while. I mean, I, I think he still does today. He lives in New York today. Imagine just what it must be like to come back to those towers years after and kind of, you know, just stand there and look at them and think, yeah, you know, I, I walked between these towers on a rope once. <laughs> <laughs> that would be weird because, like, I don't know when he lived in New York. I imagine probably not straight away, but, like, he was only 24 when he did it. So, yeah. and he's, um, how old is he now? He's, he's 70, 70 years old. So that's a long time to be able to just look at the buildings and think, geez, I, I did it. So, yeah, that's pretty pretty long time, actually. Yeah. One of the things I really liked about the movie, you know, he, he had a team working with him, preparing for, for this, the walk. And it kind of looked like they had nothing else to do. <laughs> like they had all the time in the world <laughs> to plan and do it and just solve all the problems and practice uh, long bowing and everything. It felt like, like a fun adventure. <laughs> what was John Louis' day job as well? Because like you kind of felt like John Louis was like his brother. Like that's the vibe I got from him. Yeah. But he's just a childhood friend, yeah. so he must have just had a long gap year or something like that. He just had time, <laughs> so. And Annie wasn't doing much either, so she was just hanging about. Yep. That and the, the, the whole heist feeling that they gave the movie just just made this movie fun for me. Like, it made me invested in his success. I really, really wanted him to complete his task. How did you guys feel about it? Um, the movie in general, I sort of, I didn't really know what to think about it when I went into the movie. And as I told you, I didn't know it was a heist sort of setup. So, like, when they were talking about it, it was, like, revealing to me that it was sort of an illegal thing. Like, because obviously in the age of, you know, YouTube and stuff like that, you kind of feel like this would be something that would be sponsored by Red Bull. You know what I mean? It's just... Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've actually forgotten that there were things that, you like, you could do like this that they wouldn't actually allow you to do because it's not hurting anyone. So I thought that kind of made the movie sort of enjoyable, like minute to minute. But in general, in the whole movie, I thought it was a weird feeling sort of coming out of this movie, like especially towards the end when he sort of, I guess we could say cheats on his girlfriend a little bit. So it's just a weird... <laughs> yeah, that, that was a weird scene. It, yeah, That was weird. And especially like it was, it was an odd sort of end to the movie, I thought. Like I didn't really know what to expect from a movie like this. Like, you know what I mean? There's no like, there's no way to end it besides like him just doing like getting arrested. So um, yeah, I don't know. I, I sort of enjoyed it minute to minute, but at the, the end it kind of left me feeling a little bit Weird. What about you, Barrio? Um, I didn't quite enjoy it. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. I mean, I, I could understand the appeal, but it didn't really get me. I don't know. It kind of felt um, petite kind of... I don't know. He kind of felt um, very uh, bloated with himself. So I didn't really connect to, to his character. I, I understood the passion. And, and like I understood that they tried selling it as... as um, 
like true events and I believe those were true events but it felt I don't know it kind of felt artificial to me uh, so it didn't really connect and what you and Peter said like it, it really it also bugged me throughout the movie like I could understand uh, you know hiding from the police but it kind of doesn't make sense that you have to, to spend hours under a tarp or you know that eventually you know the the police come and and you're kind of doing nonsense well i guess they were kind of anarchists in their own artistic way yeah um mm-hmm. and also the the scene at the end with when he cheats on his girlfriend it, it like is this a bit of a bummer yeah yeah it really was it uh, it kept like building up and it got to this resolution then it it ended so uh, so it kind of took you on this journey which for me felt a bit artificial and then ended with like this really loud thunk yeah um yeah after you say it was felt like artificial that actually makes a lot of sense and that actually kind of clicks with me as well i didn't think about it that way but like yeah it did feel a little bit like I don't know, it just had this weird feeling to me. Like, obviously, maybe a little bit was like, because they were French, it was like, obviously, there's a little bit of, like, maybe that was lost in translation, but it was it was a little bit, like, it was like a weird sort of mix of, like, self-congratulatory, but also, like, trying to relay the facts. So, like, you couldn't really tell exactly how truthful it was like the bit yeah for instance like do you guys remember that bit where he kind of just like strips naked just so he can feel that the or the 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 arrow which the um the other guy like hoisted over Mm -hmm. yeah like he shot it from the north to the south tower and he missed it because it was dark yeah his first instinct was oh better strip naked and find this thing <laughs> just like oh his his reasoning was <laughs> that he needed to feel the rope around but i didn't buy it <laughs> that was just that was artificial <laughs> yeah. yeah it kind of reminded me do you know what do you know tim minchin is like uh yeah yeah, uh, yeah an australian yeah. comedian yeah i think i mentioned him I, I really like him so he got like this like in his early stand-up he says that he, he performed one of the his uh, silly songs uh, right before uh mariah carey show so he, he was behind the stages and one of the stage workers came to him and he said you know she she lip sings right and and he was like really puzzled because he thought that um if you lip sync in in a, in a concert, then why not lip sync to to something that is actually good and better than Mariah Carey? <laughs> and it it, it, it kind of made me think about this because if you're doing something that is altogether artificial and and kind of it doesn't feel like really realistic, then why not do it? Do something good and something a bit more exciting because it didn't feel like a true story and it didn't got to the standard of. Of, of a heist movie but so if hmm. it kind of it kind of fell between the chairs there but i guess you know may, maybe the story itself had had its potential like i guess if you stripped a lot of a lot of those artificial and weird things you, you get a pretty cool story not not necessarily one that worth a documentary about but definitely an interesting story i kind of get what you say there was this odd feeling to the story like you could feel that some stuff was bloated but I, don't, I was nervous I was kind of rooting for him I wanted him to succeed and I was I was you know kind of scared that they're gonna fail you know I, I kind of I bought in I mm. think is what I'm trying to say mm. I yeah. feel like I'm sort of in the middle like I sort of bought in like during like a lot of it like I was sort of like getting hyped to see it because I'd never seen any videos of it and stuff, and I didn't know exactly how it would go. So I was sort of like, I was pumped just to see like what was around the corner, but just towards the end, it was sort of like, it kind of fell flat a little bit. And when I was reflecting on it, like the more I thought about it, the more I was kind of in two minds about how I felt about it. So yeah, um, yeah like it's a weird one because obviously like I recommended it which is hard to recommend <laughs> like this podcast is such a weird thing <laughs> where like we're sort of recommending things without having seen them like the whole premise is like yeah. we can't have seen them <laughs> but we're also making two other people to see it so um <laughs> so I sort of wanted to have something that would be fun to talk about so 
but yeah. also I want to wanted to get something which was noted as being popular. So like obviously this one won best um, best feature feature documentary and stuff like that. So I wanted something that was like in the public eye, so to speak. So um, yeah. yeah. So when I was like watching it, I was I was having a fun time, but I was also like. I don't know what I want out of this film. You know what I mean? I just, like, with Jaws, like, we wanted, like, something that was classic 1970s, but we wanted to see, like, good special effects for the age. We wanted to see, like, a compelling story. We wanted to see, like, amazing acting and stuff like that. But with this, like, we we sort of just, I don't know, like, you don't want to see amazing acting. You just want to see whatever happened. And, you know, obviously the story is sort of, not very amenable because it's needs to be based on the actual truth. So it just, it was a weird, it was a weird sort of experience. So, um, yeah, yeah, but I hope I didn't waste, um, waste Barrio's time because I know you didn't enjoy it as much, but, um, (laughs) no, definitely. Listen, I, I, I admit I fell asleep twice during the movie. So I had to, (laughs) to actually run it back and watch it again. But I, I don't get me wrong. I think that part of what we do here and also with, with uh, our listeners is uh, we go on a quest, you know, and sometimes yep. you find something good in a quest and sometimes you find something that like resonates with you a bit less. Um, but it's, but all in all, it's good. Like I, I'm happy that I saw it. Yeah. And I think what's interesting is that we have the whole, the whole spectrum. Like, you know, like that you, you're in the middle. I didn't. That's, no. that's cool. I mean, that, that's what creates a discussion. I have to say something just to kind of defend, defend uh, Petit. Yes, this, uh, is I, I another... with, um, this is what I had to do with, this is what I had to do with Pet Sounds, by the way, because yep, uh, exactly. <laughs> it's me versus you a little bit. And I was like, I was saying like, oh, yeah, it was pretty good. And you were saying like, yeah, yeah, no, I didn't really feel it. And I was going, oh, yeah, yeah. But, you know, these songs are pretty good. And you're like, yeah, there was a bit of a few dud songs. And I'm like, are we having a disagreement? <laughs> like, am I going to have to step in and like <laughs> defend this? Like, I didn't realize we were disagreeing for a good part of that episode. So this is the bit where you actually recognize you need to defend it. I don't think we it. disagreed. I think we kind of, uh, we kind of liked it just at, at a different level. But like here, I kind of have to, somewhat defend it i think i watched another documentary movie that was made about philip petit in i think the 80s I'm yeah judging i think this used for was the one you're uh, talking about um and he didn't seem as bloated and as full of himself as he did here so i think maybe the the director kind of edged him on to kind of i don't know make it feel more exciting or something so i don't think it's uh it might not have been him. Is all I'm gonna say. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean. I mean. That. That. That's. That's fair. Um. But you know, as far as like watching a movie and building the character within the movie. Yeah. Then. Yep. You're right. Uh. Like uh, after watching a, a a few other stuff on YouTube about the guy, I kind of felt that he's pure of heart, kind of a positive guy. I really liked him, but I can totally see. Uh, like uh, now that I'm thinking about it, I came out of this movie thinking that uh, kind of what you're saying. But after watching a bit more on YouTube, I kind of changed my mind about him. So uh, I kind of get what you say. And uh, something I really I found really interesting. Uh, did you guys uh, wonder how he funded flying around the world, hiring helicopters to go looking at the tower and stuff? Um, from doing kids shows. Yeah, exactly. He was he was doing juggling and magic. Oh, you're like street shows. Really, I, I was I was yeah. joking. He, no, no, you got it exactly right. Holy, he, that's what he did, and, and it was he did it for months at a time, and he, he he like scrapped every penny and everything, and he got arrested hundreds of times uh, in preparing for this. You know, like because street performance isn't legal, um, at least not how he did it, and. I find it really interesting because when I found out that this is how he did it, I kind of thought, what is he going to do after the walk? I mean, is he going to go back to street performing? Isn't it going to leave kind of a gap or a hole in his life? And he he addressed it in a TED Talk, which I'm going to link in the show notes. He said that he kind of worked it out, uh, the, the tower walk in his mind to be something kind of regular. You know, he kind of downplayed it in his mind. And he says that now when he's performing in the streets, he feels as happy as he was when he was on the rope between the towers, which I find kind of charming. What was his like demeanor it. like in the TED Talk? Was he sort of like more relaxed or? No, actually, also, he was kind of 
trying to excite everyone and he was jumping around and you know trying to make a big deal out of everything Th- but that makes sense though, as again, a TED talk can, that does yeah, make sense I think TED talk is very much produced and directed I, I didn't expect less yeah. from him well looking at the director James Marsh he when you go into his like biopic it's like um, his British film and documentary director best known for his work on Man on Wire like that's the bit that confuses me like I just like, I'm looking at what he's done. He's done King of Thieves. He's done Theory of Everything. He's done um, The King. He's done Shadow Dancer. He's done, like, quite a few hmm. um, films. And I just think, like, it's very... I just don't know why this movie in particular is sort of, like, praised as much as it is. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. It's just It just seems like it's sort of... It feels almost like a bit of a cult following for it. But hmm. it's just not. It got a few prizes. Yeah, I kind of, I, I, I've enjoyed the story, but I didn't think the movie was all that great. You know. Yeah. Like the the production, I don't know. It it was okay, but it had its problems. Yeah, he's also done um, like the theory of everything was one. Um, this was 2015, so a little bit more recent. But he did it on um, Stephen Hawking, and it looks as yeah. sort of university days and stuff like that, which I think is interesting. Like, um. I'm mildly interested in Stephen Hawking, so um, might be something to watch. But um, but I can't say like after seeing this, it gets me super pumped to see the theory of everything. Like it's just I'm just Mm -hmm. so so about it, you know. Yeah. After Philippe did did his walk, um, he kind of got he really did get famous, and people started inviting him to do walks. Like he performed in this um, festival in Switzerland. He performed in a festival here in Israel and which here in Israel, his walk, he kind of turned it into um, an art piece that's uh, promoting peace, which I really liked. And um, he kind of went all around the world and did talks and walks. And I think he, I don't know, made it. I think he got what he deserved all along you know he's a really really talented guy and i kind of really think he's just just a good nice regular guy Uh, i'm glad for him oh that's cool yeah Yeah. i i really did enjoy this i really did enjoy this film i had fun watching it i felt i had fun kind of researching after watching it um for this episode and i don't know i kind of i I, in my google calendar i have a, a separate calendar for you know like interesting dates like birthdays of people i appreciate or like or you know all kinds of stuff and i i'm gonna do that and i added uh the date that he walked on the um uh between the twin towers to my calendar and once every once a year i'll be reminded of that i kind of liked it it's somewhat inspiring i think i'm glad i saw it and i'm glad that our quest isn't full of just um things we all agree that are just great um so i i agree with that um (laughs) and i agree with that um (laughs) i disagree um, just to disagree um (laughs) so now i'm i'm happy i saw it and i was entertained um whilst i watch it and i think it's it's fun to see what um what 2008 documentaries um were winning awards for, but <laughs> that, that, that was very political. <laughs> that sounded that sounded so much crueler than I thought in my head. <laughs> Barrow, any closing remarks? Uh, can I can I also use it? <laughs> it's it's nice to see what documentaries from two thousand and eight win awards for. Um, I haven't enjoyed the movie. We, I'm glad we, we saw it. I mean, it, it was an interesting experience. Um, it made me think about uh, walking on wires. Then it made me think about not walking on wires. And I immediately felt safer. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, vive la, vive la France, vive la France. <laughs> if I asked you to help me organize something like this, would you help me? To, to walk on a wire? Uh, no, you know, I can't do that. I can't barely walk in the street. <laughs> but <laughs> Yeah, it, keep, it keeps falling. But... <laughs> no, but if I asked you to do something illegal and extravagant with me, would you Would you be there? Would you be that friend? Like breaking an entrance and, and, uh, and doing some, something artistic or murdering someone? 
and think and and you're being recorded Both. so uh, murder you know. can be artistic <laughs> <laughs> you haven't seen my murders Peter, just just for being here, you're you're an accomplice. So keep that in mind. <laughs> I'm just annoyed that I haven't been invited to the murder art festival. Oh no! Uh, according to this movie, murder art. We need an Australian with us. Yeah. Oh, Can yes. we call you Albert? You can. <laughs> So, uh, for next episode, we're going to be watching um, Hunt for the Wilder People by Taika Waititi, which I haven't even... I don't know anything about it, but I've heard that name so many times. Uh, people keep recommending it, and um, I'm glad that we're going to be watching it finally. It's going to be uh, a gap to close. Yeah, definitely. I think the Taika Waititi gap is um, getting ever bigger, so I think we need to plug that hole quick because he's making hmm. so many movies so um hmm. just a few yeah. notable things it was made with a two and a half million dollar budget which is pretty small actually so um yep. i think he I, I don't know i haven't seen many things by taika but i think he specializes in sort of like offbeat comedy sort of um uh i don't want to say cult, more indie sort of films um which is hmm. indie comedy sort of um stuff which is like not necessarily to say it's like alternative, like not for the general consumption, but it's more like sort of like a different brand. So this one is more. Yeah, I think Thor Ragnarok is probably a good example. I think with his less um, um, mainstream movies, like not like with Thor, but I think it kind of tries to shock you, I think, maybe. Yeah, I got that vibe as well. So this one's um, like a New Zealand sort of adventure comedy drama kind of thing. So now it should kind of be interesting so and i think taika is also a new zealander so um that should be interesting yeah um looking forward to it so thank you peter and thank you barrio for staying true to our goal and a big thank you to bill sunderland of the escape this podcast and solve this murder podcast for doing this episode's awesome intro bit and thank you the listeners at home for helping us along the latest stage of our quest we hope that you join us again next episode and we'll talk to you soon bye-bye see ya see ya Canadians, Americans, tattoo artists, the dark web, AI, bodybuilding, conspiracy theories, competitive eating, male genitalia. It's all covered. Don't worry, our genitalia are actually covered every week on Jumbled. Zach and Johnny, two longtime friends, get together weekly and talk about literally anything. It's all raw, unscripted, and unfiltered. Come give it a listen for yourself on any podcasting platform. It's Jumbled, your favorite podcast about nothing.